I think that a person's sexuality and eroticism are incredible gifts um, that people have and that if embraced for what they are and integrated in a way that the person doing the integration feels is good for their life um, can be just incredible blessings for people. Welcome to the Right Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Pomeroy. Join me as I interview fellow local therapists and learn about the human beings behind the credentials. You'll be touched by their stories as well as learn from their professional knowledge. Keep listening. The next guest might be the right fit for you. Are we recording already? Yep, we're recording now. (laughs) Snap. (laughs) Okay, so... Just introduce yourself a little bit, would you, Patrick, for us? Okay. So my name is Patrick Powers. I'm a licensed associate marriage and family therapist. And um, what else would you like to know? Tell us a little bit about things like where you practice, who you see, what you Uh, specialize in. Okay. So I practice at the EFT clinic um, at the offices both in Lehigh and in uh, Mill Creek. And... Um, I see typically adults, both individuals and couples. Um, and then my two, um, maybe most dominant specialties are obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. um, especially, um, with autogenous obsessions. Mm-hmm. And then, um, what does that mean? Autogenous obsessions are, um, obsessions that center around fear of self. Um, so harm obsessions or sexual obsessions, um, fear of real life catastrophe happening and being implicated in it, mm-hmm. overinflated sense of responsibility, that sort of thing. Oftentimes, especially in the media, you see OCD portrayed as sort of just germophobia, right? Where washing the hands. Washing the hands yeah. a lot of times. Maybe you see things like you know, checking the stovetop and unplugging the curling iron or whatever else. But what's really interesting, and one of the things that got me into therapy in the first place was Mm -hmm. the fact that it is so much broader than that and so much more complicated and so much more difficult, actually, than that. Um, It's not always quite so straightforward. Um, And a lot of people who deal with OCD Again, in the media, it's often portrayed almost for comic effect, right? That, oh, we don't want to touch the doorknob. And, you know, it's it's kind of played for a laugh, but it is one of the most debilitating of all mental disorders. It leads people to sort of paint themselves into a corner and limit their lives in incredible ways that typically are not even observable. Oftentimes the obsessions are such that the people who are suffering with them don't realize that it's obsessive compulsive disorder and don't feel like they could ever tell anyone about the thoughts that are plaguing them. So I thought it was really interesting when I found out just sort of the, the breadth of different obsessions that some people deal with, um, what kinds of things are going to be most helpful for them. How, do, how did you first learn, like, when when was that brought to your awareness? Um, so I was in my early 20s, and someone very close to me um, disclosed to me that they had OCD, um, at which point, um, just being close to this person and wanting to be helpful, I started to really dig into it, read books and scholarly articles, and to really try to become sort of an amateur expert. And over the years, 
I decided that, you know, I think I know enough about this. I could probably help people with this. Uh, they were going to make me get a degree in order to do that. Yeah. So. And then to go back to your original question, um, the, the second specialization um, is dealing with issues of sex and sexuality um, and eroticism, primarily shame and okay. sort of how it develops around the topic of sex. I think that a person's sexuality and eroticism are incredible gifts um, that people have and that if embraced for what they are and integrated in a way that the person doing the integration feels is good for their life um, can be just incredible blessings for people. And I hate to see people, for lack of a better term, go to war with their sexuality um, because ultimately it's it's a losing battle and you're losing out on a lot of um, potential enjoyment and fulfillment that can come from exploring and embracing that side of yourself. I've always seen that and then when it comes to the obsessive compulsive sort of side of that equation, um, generally speaking people who have um, sexual obsessions mm -hmm. are compulsively avoidant of sex hmm. and sexuality. Okay. Um, and in the rare instances where they're not obsessively avoidant, um, they typically engage not in the ways that most people uh, consider compulsive sexual behavior, right? Mm. Most people, when they think of compulsive sexual acting out, they're really thinking more of impulsive yes. acting out, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, the maybe what appears to be a decreased ability to pull yourself back when you feel like acting sexually, mm -hmm. right? So typically, you know, when you see someone who feels almost victimized by their own sexuality, that, mm -hmm. well, I have this really high libido, I'm always wanting to engage sexually, which, you know, leads me to engaging in ways that, you know, maybe have gotten me in trouble, and, um, and I'd like to try and pull back on that. That's not compulsion, um, uh -huh. compulsion is acting in a way to either soothe or neutralize and, and not in a more abstract sense that like I, my soul is broken and I'm acting sexually to try and fill that hole. Mm -hmm. It's much more narrowly tailored. It's, I am engaging in, you know, masturbating to gay porn in order to try and prove to myself that I'm not in fact gay, my obsession, right? Mm -hmm. I'm terrified that I might in fact be gay. And so I watch gay porn to prove to myself that I don't really enjoy it all that much. Uh -huh. There's, there's, I enjoy this. And so I like to do it a lot versus mm -hmm. I don't even like this, but this is the only thing I can do to, you know, get through the day. Well, I can already tell there's going to be a lot, a lot here, <laughs> which I'm just so excited about, but I want to know more about Patrick. So wherever that starts, tell me about who you are. Okay. Um, so I was born in California, lived um, a couple of years there, don't remember too much of it, moved to Houston, Texas, um, where I lived until I was eight years old. Um, when my parents divorced, I moved um, to a, I, I, I now recognize it as a much like more medium-sized town. I always thought oh. of it as kind of a small town. Okay. After LA and Houston, everything yeah, seems kind of small. Totally. But, but a, a medium-sized town in Oklahoma mm -hmm. um, where I lived most of my childhood and adolescence, um, at which point um, I served an LDS mission mm -hmm. in Central America, came home, 
um, came out to Utah for school, and I've been out here ever since. What? How do? You, what do you think of Utah? What do you? How do you like it here? It's a beautiful place. Uh huh. Housing market's nuts. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it is crazy. But it is a lovely place. Is this where you want to stay? Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe. We'll see what the housing market does. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But I will be here for the foreseeable future. Now, something I know about you is that you were, you taught a little bit for a while, right? You did. did. Was it middle school? Um, I taught actually, and we don't have to go into all of this, but I taught at one point, I taught essentially every grade from preschool through high school. Um, in about eight years, um, wow. working in various capacities for two different schools, bounced around, um, teaching quite a few different things, but yeah, mostly middle school. Do you still work with kids much as a, in therapy? I don't. No. Mm-mm. Okay. Is that something that like, if I were to send you and I'm asking because I already did <laughs> <laughs> like an 11 year old kid struggling with OCD, uh-huh. is that something that you would could do. I absolutely would. Um, I, I find in a lot of ways um, I relate very well with kids because our maturity levels are pretty, pretty close. <laughs> okay. So if you're immature, see Patrick. That's right. Okay. Love it. And we're all a little immature. So I'm a lot. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, what happened in your life that caused you to go, hmm, I want to help people by being a therapist? So I've always liked to help people. Just, I just generally enjoy being able to help others. Um, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. Um, and so it's always been something that I've, I've sought after. Um, I like to feel like I have the ability, um, to be a positive influence in someone else's life, whether that's, you know, helping them, you know, just get through a tough time, Mm -hmm. um, after a loss or, um, with just lots of conflict in their life or, um, you know, helping them with a, a more particular sort of issue like OCD. Um, but just feeling as if sort of as fellow travelers, I'm able to step into someone else's life for a brief moment yeah. and influence it for the better. I, I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the fact that as a therapist and working especially with people with OCD, I get to step into someone's life in the middle of what to them internally is a very chaotic and very intense moment. The average person with OCD waits um, at least seven years before seeking treatment. And even after that, oftentimes um, finding really competent treatment is even more of a struggle. Just knowing, right, from my experiences with others, how intense and how awful it can be to be in the thick of it to be that person that someone can come to and um, get to feeling better. It feels amazing. I mean, I, I don't know that I would feel you if I would feel better if I were, say, an ER surgeon, you uh-huh. know, taking a gunshot wound patient, right? Yeah. Like to, I feel as if I'm able to step in and meet someone in this really awful emotional space mm-hmm. and and be at risk of sounding sort of like I have an overinflated ego, like a lifeline to someone uh-huh. who really is at the end of their rope and, and needs some help. Yeah. yeah, that's it's a powerful place to be, but also carries some intensity, right? Even just as you say that, like ER, like that's like a someone's lifeline. That's a big deal, but you like it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> All right, Patrick, what are we going to talk about today? What are you passionate about right now? What are you wanting people to learn from you? What I want people to learn from me, um, I want to talk about the thing no one's talking about. I want to talk about sex. Let's do that. Let's talk about sex. So, as I said before, working with OCD, I love to work with people uh, with any sort of presenting obsessions. Mm-hmm. I, I love it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I can help with any of them. Um, but I especially love the ones who come to me with these very difficult sexual obsessions because I love to be the person that someone else can bring anything to without judgment, mm-hmm. without overreaction, yeah. without shame. We can talk about anything. I have, um, you know, you work with clients with OCD and um, sexual obsessions range um, from simply, you know, having sexual thoughts and feeling just terrible about them um, to having sexual thoughts about people that you don't feel you're allowed to have sexual thoughts about um, or to having kinds of sexual thoughts that you don't think you should be having, right? Um, to be so hyper-focused on sex and sexuality that these thoughts just sort of come to you. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're distressed by them makes them come back more frequently and more intensely. People will come in and say, you know, I'm, I'm really, really struggling because I don't want to have sex with my kids, but I keep having thoughts of having sex with my kids. Yeah. And to be able to sort of create an emotional space where it is safe to talk about and normalize the existence in our heads of random, Mm -hmm. potentially distressing sexual and erotic thoughts, you know, that don't match up with our values that, you know, that freak us out, but to still be able to unpack that um, and put that in context Mm -hmm. so that that person can sort of live a normal life despite the fact that these thoughts are now likely going to be an an ongoing presence in their life. So where do you start with something like that? Somebody comes in with something very taboo, Mm -hmm. right? Like something that, that they probably haven't told anyone. Mm -hmm. Where do you start with that? What do you do? So one of the questions to ask, um, and oftentimes when someone comes in for treatment for OCD, um, they typically have, have done a little bit of their own research um, and sort of identified that this mm-hmm. may be OCD. Yeah. Right? And so they will frame it a little bit differently than someone who has not yet sort of investigated what they're going through and identified it as potentially OCD. Um, but if someone comes in and says, well, I've got these sexual thoughts and I don't like them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why don't you like them? And what does that get at? Asking him that question. Why don't you like them? Well, when it comes to distress over thoughts especially, but then we could also extend to this if we if we exit sort of OCD realm yeah. and talk just about sexuality and eroticism more broadly, um, I think most people have aspects of their sexual template, um, mm-hmm. things that turn them on or things that arouse them, things that they find appealing that don't overlap all that well with their sexual values and so as a result that disconnect there creates feelings Mm -hmm. and if you deal with that for a prolonged period of time 
the natural result is to go from feeling distressed and guilty to ashamed because it's very difficult if you have a sexual arousal pattern that's you know been with you since you were 12 years old and you're now 35 and it hasn't gone away you know you have not ceased you know being turned on by this thing you still sometimes will have these thoughts and you still find them appealing you get to that point where you say well i guess this is a part of who i am but it's a part that i really don't like and there's this attempt to divorce sort of who we are in reality from our self-concept and you're you're saying a lot i'd i'd love to unpack it a little bit so i'm going to take you back to this please do this idea of um two things because i hear you say they overlap one is talk to us about what a sexual template is so a sexual template is um sort of how we understand how a person responds sexually to the world around them Um, a sexual template includes all of your five senses right so what sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations are going to be sexually appealing to you. We can put that in lots of different contexts, right? Like situationally, what do you find appealing? And, um, you know, with what people and under what circumstances are you going to find that arousing and engaging? Where do these come from? Where do these sexual templates come from? So it seems uh, sort of self-evident that they're both biologically based as well as sort of, you know, contextual and Mm -hmm. culturally contained. So through experiences, through interacting with culture, Uh they develop. Yeah, It's, uh, it's not hard to see how if you were watching TV one day as a young girl and you saw, you know, Chris Hemsworth take his shirt off and suddenly you realize, oh... Yeah. Six-pack abs and nice pecs. That, uh, this is yeah. pleasing to me. This is pleasing. Right? Mm-hmm. And to realize, again, those things, that's going to come with exposure to those things. Mm-hmm. Now, again, is being attracted to Chris Hemsworth, um, is that a cultural phenomenon? Sort of, I guess. Well, if they're putting right? him on the TV and having him take off his shirt, right? That's, that's sure. yeah. Yeah. And so there's a cultural element to it. Um, but I imagine that if you saw a person just in real life, um, who looked exactly like Chris Hemsworth with his shirt off, mm-hmm. that you would probably still find that, um, pleasing. Sure. And so again, a lot of it's biology, a lot of it's cultural, a lot of it's social. Um, and then we're also going to, when we think about, um, and this is a, a broader concept within sex therapy that you'll be familiar with. Yeah. When we talk about sexual response in general, we talk about, sort of um, excitatory factors and inhibitory factors. Mm-hmm. Um, the brake pedal and the gas pedal. Great way to understand kind of how we individually experience our sexuality. What turns me on, what turns me off. Yeah, right? what takes me out of the moment, yeah. what puts me in the moment. Mm-hmm. And so it may be that for you it's, you know, put on some Marvin Gaye and light a fire in the fireplace mm-hmm. and we'll put on the bearskin rug and uh-huh. that's going to get me in the moment. Take me out of the moment. If, like, the baby cries from the other room, immediately out of the moment. And some people have more sensitive brakes than others. Some people have a more heavy foot on the gas pedal and more gas in the tank, so to speak. Uh And so you just find a lot of natural uh, variation within any population of people that just have, you know, 
seemingly no brakes at all and, you know, a lead foot on the gas. Mm -hmm. And then those who are riding the brake and have the, you know, emergency brake pulled at all times. Yes. Yeah. And, And sometimes that can be sort of a manifestation of culture in an individual's life where you may at an early age start to discover your your gas pedal pressure initiator. I don't know what you want to call that. But <laughs> yeah. you start to discover the things that, that hit that gas pedal for you. And then someone comes in and, you know, sideswipes you. And says, and that's not okay. Says you were driving way too fast. You were yeah. going six miles an hour uh-huh. and you can't go that fast. It's like the it's culture police. Okay. <laughs> and so they say, well, you can't go that fast. In fact, mm-hmm. why don't we have you pull over into this parking lot and park the car, lock it up. Yeah. And I don't want you to even look at that car for another 10 years. And at that point, right, it's going to be very difficult when someone then asks you years later, hey, let's... uh, You want to take a spin? Let's break out your car and go for a spin. <laughs> yeah. You're like, well, I haven't even looked at my car for yeah. 10 years. I don't even know. I'm terrified of What is a gas thing. pedal? What is a brake? <laughs> yeah. So we have the template, and that's kind of genetic-based as well as experience-based that tells us what are the things that... Um, and kind of to this dual control model, what turns us on, what turns us off. And then it kind of is this like intersection with values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where do we get our sexual values? So our sexual values um, can both, you know, come via a critical examination mm-hmm. of what sex is and, and what role we want it to play in our lives. And, you know, just different moral considerations based on different moral frameworks. Mm-hmm. Um, but more often than not, um, we pick up our sexual values implicitly um, from our family and our community and the culture at large. Um, and so we develop a sense mm. for what sex is, what it means, um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, what's okay, what's not okay, um, what's normal, what's not normal. Mm-hmm. And as a result, in most cultures, we we pick up a lot of things um, that ultimately we don't feel safe to explore. Mm-hmm. And and let me unpack that a little bit. Not necessarily yeah. explore in the sense that like anything that I discover turns me on, I'm going to do it. Sure. Um, but simply allowing yourself the internal freedom to think about sex mm-hmm. and to think about it in a positive frame. Right? Yeah. To think, oh, okay, well, sex, well, that's good and what might I want to do sexually and mm-hmm. and there's this sense that well like I just I just don't know well and who yeah. do you ask mm-hmm. who do you ask growing up about not sex because everyone gets a sex talk whether yeah. it's at school or at <laughs> right. home right. but usually it's penis goes in vagina baby oh, comes yeah. out it's the mechanics it's the nuts and bolts yes yeah. and you well and what 12 year old kid really cares about fallopian tubes <laughs> Not at all. But that's but fallopian tubes. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. You need to know about sex. You're just curious yeah. about sex. No, yeah. uh-huh. kids are not curious about biology. Yeah, they're not curious about anatomy. They're curious about eroticism. Mm-hmm. They're curious about sex because yeah. by the time we're usually talking to kids about sex, they already want it, and adults feel really uncomfortable about that. And so they ignore it. And so during the years where kids are most curious about their sexuality and eroticism is the time in their life. Can you tell us like a time period? 
What do you, what, what? Well, puberty, right, is when we're going to be flooded yeah. with all of the hormones that are going to, like, literally turn us into sexually mature creatures right. capable of sex um, and reproduction. And that is going to fuel interest yeah. in sex and sexuality and sexual pleasure and all of the different things that hit the gas and hit the brakes. And, and kids want to know about that stuff. And adults desperately want them not to know about that stuff. And so the, <laughs> yeah. the sense that most kids develop and every kid becomes an adult, um, the sense is this is a topic we do not talk about. Um, and if we do talk about it, we only talk about it in certain ways, usually in euphemism. And we talk about it, um, again, just so vaguely mm-hmm. that we have way more questions than answers we take that into adulthood Mm -hmm. and then we kind of blindly fumble around in the dark to try and get answers to some of those questions. And oftentimes even when we get answers to those questions, we feel that they're unsatisfying. Um, and I, I wonder like where even adults go to get good information about eroticism and about sexuality. I, I, find that pornography is often the most education that a lot of people receive. Does watching pornography create your sexual template? Or is it kind of like a discovering like, hey, I think I I like that. What's your favorite dessert? Mm. How about chocolate chip cookies? Love chocolate chip. Had them last night. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you tried chocolate chip cookies? Nope. But you remember years ago eating them and loving them. Yes, I, yep. At one point, you had never tried chocolate chip cookies before. That's true, yes. So the question then, I give you chocolate chip cookies, you say, wow, these are amazing. Mm -hmm. Or if I give you some new dessert and you say, wow, this tastes amazing. Yeah. Did you like it before you tried it? No, I guess not. But That's where did the question. potential yeah. to enjoy that dessert come from? Was it always within you? I think so. Yes. And so I think that for most people, when it comes to their use of erotic material, it is more a process of discovering what we just were likely to be turned on by. It's not so much that like if I give you a cookie, me giving you the cookie is suddenly going to be the reason you like it. Uh Um, you just, you have taste buds and you have a brain and you have other patterns in your brain, um, that exist to register the different tastes of the things that you eat. Yeah. And so you have some frame of reference. Right. You understand what sweet things taste like and chocolate tastes like and all of the different other elements that are contributing to that sensation you feel when you bite into that cookie. But it's not so much that the cookie itself created that. Mm-hmm. So much as it just fit into the template that was already there. Yeah. Okay. But I, I can, I can hear people going, but I don't want my kids to be exposed to all this erotic material, or I don't want my husband to be exposed to all this erotic material, because then all of a sudden it's like giving them ideas, giving them, right. Giving them like, well, go back to the gay porn thing. It's like, I didn't know that I was gay until I watched gay porn. Right? Like, I think that's the fear that comes up is like when they're given the material, it gives them the template. Or it at the very least shines light on their template. 
and mm-hmm. the maybe expansiveness of it. And that's where we get to that incongruence between values and sexual template that is sort of the root of sexual shame. The shame. Because just because something exists within your sexual template doesn't mean you have to pursue it. Mm, so good. Yeah. And so if I can... So the question then becomes, and I see this a lot with people who, again, because they feel so ashamed, try to divorce their sexuality, their eroticism, from who they are. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, I don't really like these things. Porn made me like these things. Mm-hmm. I watched porn and then I liked these things. and I don't want to like those things. So it's not that I like it. It's that this made me like it. Uh-huh. And so we try to kind of we try to make our sexuality something that is outside ourselves, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, and this is my personal and professional opinion, I think there's something very disempowering about that. It does sound disempowering. I think that there is something to be said for, like someone like maybe myself, who mm-hmm. has the tendency to eat way too many chocolate chip cookies. Um, if I come in and I say, I eat too many chocolate chip cookies. Well, you must hate chocolate chip cookies. No, I don't. I don't hate them. I really like them. Uh, we, you, you don't enjoy them. No, I, I do. I, mm-hmm. I just eat too many of them, and that is impacting my life in a way that I'd like it not to, and mm-hmm. so I'd like to eat fewer of them. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. If someone says, well, you know, I don't like porn, but I feel like I'm addicted to it. I feel like I can't stop watching it. I say, okay, well, so you, what would it mean if you said... I like porn, but I feel like I watch too much of it Mm. and I'd like to watch less. Yeah. What the feeling that I get is it is, is this feeling of empowerment. It's this ownership of it. And it's a, I like it and I choose to not partake of it. Mm -hmm. Sure. Which is if, if we really think about it, this precedes porn. Yeah. A lot of the issues people bring up in therapy surrounding porn are as old as time, mm-hmm. right? That, well, I don't want my husband looking at porn because then he'll compare me to other women. Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. If you guys aren't living as hermits up in the woods, mm-hmm. he already sees other women. And his brain is seeing those women and he may be attracted to them, he may not be, but chances are there's a certain number of women out there that he does find attractive. He's still not having sex with those women, right? Well, yeah. Well, doesn't that make you feel good? That your husband can be attracted to all these other women and still choose only you to be sexual with? That's pretty impressive. And you likewise find other people attractive. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> or my favorite, Liam. I'm, I'm a big Liam fan. Um, Liam, he's yeah. He's more attractive than Chris is. But, <laughs> but right, you, you, you like him, right? You see him in Thor and oh, heart starts beating a little faster. And whew, yeah, he's an attractive guy. He's got lots of money, too. Take you having out. sex with him. He could, he could take you out on the yacht. <laughs> yeah. You could, you know, watch the sunrise <laughs> in the Caribbean and, <laughs> and, you know, eat fresh seafood and have sex with Liam Hemsworth. Yeah. How's that sound? That sounds like a great fantasy is what it sounds well, like. Do you have to act on it? No. But do you also have to hate yourself for finding that appealing? No. And does because, it have because... to be, does it have to be not you either? Do you have to say, well, that's not me. I only want to, to go out on Liam Hemsworth yacht and eat seafood and have sex with him. I only want that because I watched, you know, movies. 
the movies made me want. They me gave me those ideas, and I, yeah. Trying to divorce, kind divorce of divorce your sexuality, divorce that part of yourself. Yeah, that, not even sexuality. Divorce your erotic nature. Yeah, it's okay to authentically want to have sex with Liam Hemsworth mm-hmm. and not do it because your higher order values tell you that the trade-off is preferable for you. That mm-hmm. seeking out sex with Liam Hemsworth is, I mean, not only more effort than it's probably worth, um, but it would also, you know. It would also impact my relationship with my spouse. Um, and I like my relationship with my spouse and I want to keep it the way it is. And so I prefer all the benefits to this sexual exclusivity I have with my spouse to the benefits of having or trying to have sex with Liam Hemsworth. It's okay to hold those two ideas simultaneously, that right. there is an authentic part of me mm-hmm. that would like to go out on his yacht and have sex with him. And there is another part of me that knows that, you know, the consequences of that would just not be worth it for me. So it is the aligning with your values and owning your erotic nature at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And even just feeling safe to explore what your sexual values are and why they're there. Right. Was it Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living? Oftentimes we just, we, you know, adopt or adapt to certain sexual values and we don't question them. We don't explore them. We don't really confidently embrace them for ourselves. We just go along to get along. That I think is another part of what sometimes the problem for people well, what keeps them from exploring their values? Um, well, oftentimes it's it's guilt and, and a lot of times invalidation on the part of others. And it does get to be a really tricky thing, especially for people who feel and are, who feel it communicated to them growing up that your sexuality is not something that you're allowed to even think about mm-hmm. until you're old enough to actually start driving to, yeah. to go back to our analogy right. from earlier, right? right? And we'll give you the keys and, and the title and everything and go out and, you know, drive it around mm-hmm. when you get married, perhaps, right? Yep. You don't, I, we don't want you watching videos of people driving. We don't want you uh-huh. talking to people who drive. Yeah. We don't want you looking into the car. We don't want you, mm-hmm. um, again, don't even don't even think about driving. If you're ever tempted to think about driving, sing a hymn. Yeah. So you right. never even think about right. what it would be like to drive. Mm-hmm. And so when you get to that point where you're like, okay, time to drive. Who are you allowed to talk about driving with? Maybe your spouse? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, maybe your spouse is in that same sort of position. Maybe your spouse actually has some experience driving, but they sure don't want to tell you that. Nope. Because <laughs> then you'll know that they've... That they're a driver. They've driven before. And <laughs> yeah. They know a little bit, uh-huh. right? Sure. And so I said, okay, well, they're going to really be mad at me if they know that I've driven. They're going to be mm-hmm. really mad at me if they know that I've, you know, gone 110 on I-15. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you just, you, you just feel like you're not able to, um, to really examine this stuff mm-hmm. um, in an emotionally safe space. Because again, maybe the people that you're closest to are in the same boat where they don't feel like they're really 
able to communicate authentically about who they feel they are sexually, they may be in that place where they're trying to divorce their own sexuality and eroticism from their self-concept. And so to admit that, oh yeah, no, of course that would be appealing, you know, is maybe why you wouldn't do it. But yeah, I mean, I get it. Does Um, the, does the divorcing that part of themselves, how, how is that um, connected to the shame? Like, and I imagine if I'm, if I'm understanding you, the shame it develops or is a byproduct of the values not lining up with um, our template Mm -hmm. and we feel feelings of shame because of that. Sure. And let's even, let's take it back a little bit and something that's related to sexual template, but maybe isn't precisely within actual sexual template. Um, We can talk about just the libido itself. Okay. Um, so the, the frequency and the intensity with which a person desires to be sexual, they desire to express their own sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, to experience sexual pleasure and orgasm, um, to engage with others sexually, the just again, frequency and intensity with which someone feels the need, the desire, the impulse to do that. Right. And, and okay. (laughs) There's so much here, so much uh-huh. nuance, you know, know. it's uh-huh. like, ah, I feel like I'm skipping over a whole bunch of stuff. But what catches my attention as we talk about libido is that um, there's kind of there's t- different types of desire. There's mm-hmm. this spontaneous desire uh-huh. where people it is kind of like an impulse, like they just feel it. It's it's there. Well, and the... versus like a responsive desire. Sure. right? Uh-huh. OK. Um, now, in the case of people who have spontaneous desire, I, I think. Um, the best research sort of hints at rather than being genuinely spontaneous, it's more the effect of likely biological precursors mm. just making a person more sensitive to sexual cues in right. their environment. It's like that more sensitive accelerator, more sensitive yeah. gas pedal. And, and so if I'm if I'm walking along through a Target parking lot and I see a a nice looking woman in a pair of yoga pants and that registers as sexually relevant to my brain, well, that's going to increase the sexual tension I'm dealing with. And then if, again, because I'm just biologically predisposed to notice more sexual cues, I see things, I hear things, I smell things, and that all contributes to that building sexual tension is essentially libido. That libido. Yeah. And so people tend to feel very conflicted yeah. about their libido, yeah. both people with low and high libido, um, especially low libido partners in relationship. Um, and so everyone sort of feels one way or another about what is the correct amount and intensity with which one should want to be sexual. Especially when there's the dynamic of you're not on the exact same level as your partner, right? There's always a negotiation happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I talk about this all the time that in any relationship, there's always a higher and a lower desire spouse. It could be that one spouse wants it once a year and one wants it twice a year. But, there's a, but a there is a differential. Yep. Yep. Um, and you may have two people that want sex every day. Mm-hmm. But if one wants it twice a day, mm-hmm. a couple times a week, mm-hmm. then you have a lot of lower and higher desire partner. Right. And so it's inescapable that mm-hmm. you will have higher and lower desire partners. And so everyone's going to have some feelings about 
what is the correct, correct. amount yep. to be sexual? Yep. And so that question is one that I, I like to ask clients because it sort of starts to reveal uh, when we really dig into it where they got their sense for what sex is, what it means. Is it scary or is it wonderful? Is it, um, and how much is the correct amount? I'm going to put you on the spot. How much is the correct amount to want to be sexual? Who the hell knows? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's the amount that works for the couple. Okay. Well, and there's where we'll start with talking about the shame then. The, the sexual template is one thing, mm-hmm. um, but the sexual template is only relevant because we have libido. If you have no libido, zero at all, you just never feel sexual desire in the yeah. least, never feel aroused, never feel turned on, then what turns you on doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. nothing turns you on because yeah. you simply don't have any libido at all or it is so low as to be, you know, only becomes relevant once every five years, right? Uh-huh. Like it's... It's just a non-issue for you. So if we go back to talking about libido, if someone says, okay, well, starting at age 11, my libido shot through the roof. Yeah. At 11 years old, everything turned me on. And that, well, everything turns you on, but what do you do with it? What do you do with that libido? What do you do with that sexual tension? Now, if someone comes to you and says, don't do anything with it at all, don't even think about it. Well, good luck, you know. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. We'll try, but it's not going to be successful. A 12-year-old or an 11-year-old who's constantly aroused. Again, no adult likes to talk about horny 11-year-olds. That's the world we actually <laughs> yeah. live in. You can't get an 11-year-old to just stop being horny all the time. You can't. Now, you can, just, you can tell them, don't be. Mm-hmm. Or do something else with that energy. But energy is not fungible like money is. Can't take sexual energy and Turn it transform into it into something academic else. energy. <laughs> yeah. You can distract yourself from it. So the thoughts will come back. The feelings will come back. And the desire to express that sexual energy, usually through masturbation and fantasy, will come back. And if you are terrified of that mm-hmm. because of the messaging um, around sexuality and eroticism and the expression of sexuality and eroticism are well it's really dangerous you got to keep it under lock and key until you get married and nothing before that and we're not going to talk about it because mm-hmm. i don't want to talk about that with my 11 year old you're not going to do it so just don't do it and don't talk to me about it and then when you repeatedly fail to live up to that particular standard you have two choices you can say all right You know, I'm a failure at living up to the standard because apparently there's just something about who I am that is incapable of living in according with this standard. Yep. And what is wrong with me? Well, I guess it's my sexuality. It's my eroticism. It's my libido. It's wrong. And so I am wrong. Mm -hmm. Unless I can, you know, and we might say overcome, you know, my sexuality. But in reality, what we're talking about is trying to divorce ourselves from it, trying to split it off from ourselves and say, okay, this is me. This is who I am. I'm a good person. This is the part of me that gets horny every day over there. It's a totally different part of me. It's not even mine. Like someone else put it there and I can't get rid of it. So Mm -hmm. it's... I don't even like it. I just, I locked it in a closet and sometimes it like gets out and I just, I I try to lock it in the closet. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's not even mine. 
not really, mm-hmm. right? Someone else put it there. And and that's a really difficult place to be. And so you... What's right? the result of that? What's the result of splitting off a part of yourself? Not even just the sexual part, right? We do this with other things as well. It actually mm-hmm. happens really frequently with trauma and experiences. So it's something, it's a strategy that we use as humans to deal with things that are too kind of unbearable. And one of those things is shame. Mm -hmm. Shame is just so hard. So how does that become a problem? I mean, I think one of the most obvious manifestations of it is that the more ashamed of our eroticism we are, um, the more power it actually has over us the more it tends to come up. And this actually sort of uh, circles back to the OCD a little bit. Right? Uh-huh. One of the reasons that any obsessive thought continues to come back is because we give so much more importance to the thought than it really deserves. The thought made us anxious first, yeah. and that anxiety made that thought really salient. It made it really important. Yeah. So that, that thought must be really, really meaningful. And it's so meaningful that I have to think about it until I can take care of it. And it's so meaningful and it's so anxiety provoking and I'm so anxious. I got to get rid of it. And you think about it, think about it, you think yep. about it. Most people don't realize that most compulsions, aside from avoidance, which most people don't acknowledge to be a compulsion either, or yeah. most people don't realize is a compulsion. Can you say, actually, I know I'm kind of cutting you off. Oh, yeah. You're headed somewhere, sure. but let's, let's take a pit stop with uh-huh. this avoidance thing. Cause I think sure. you're right. I see it a lot. I see it even in my couple clients that come in and they don't talk about sex unless I do. Sure. Right. And so the avoidance, what, how is an avoidance a compulsion? So if there is a thought that initially triggers, um, a really anxious episode, right? A thought pops into your head and, and, you know, let's say that you're, you're, you know, 16 years old and, you know, a neighbor who's 12 years old, you know, walks outside in a swimsuit and you see her and you think, oh, man, she's kind of pretty. That's, oh, she's 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Am I a pedophile? Oh, my gosh. Am I? Oh, I'm, oh, no. And the panic that sets in, right, makes yeah. that thought so sticky. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. Like this really anxiety provoking thing is going to be easier to remember than things that just kind of. Well, I thought about something was green and I didn't think it should be green, but it was. And uh-huh. you forget that almost immediate. But a thought that really causes you to panic, Sticks. that's going to come back. Yeah, sticking power. Yeah. So the thought keeps coming back mm-hmm. and you start thinking that thought over and over again. You start evaluating, right, the meaning of that thought mm-hmm. and how important it is and what needs to be done to protect you from that thought. And so you start behaving in ways that are, you know, sort of consistent with the fear induced by that thought. Mm -hmm. So if you think, oh my gosh, I'm terrified that I'm a pedophile. For this person, it's almost 100% certainty that they're not a pedophile. The profile of someone who deals with attraction to prepubescent children is very different than a 16-year-old that sees a 12-year-old and and is, you know, somewhat pleased by it, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very different. Mm -hmm. It's almost certain that this is OCD that they're experiencing. But... Um, they're, they're engaging in this thought and it's making them anxious. And so they start to engage in behaviors like, well, I can't go to the swimming pool anymore because mm. if I go to the swimming pool, there'll be kids there in swimsuits and then I'll yeah. look at them and I'll notice things and then it'll trigger these thoughts. I can't be around kids. 
And that's the and avoidance. So they avoid the swimming pool. They avoid yeah. picking their brother up from elementary school because there's kids there. They avoid babysitting mm-hmm. their cousins. They avoid yeah. going to family gatherings. They avoid all mm-hmm. kinds of things mm-hmm. because unbeknownst to anyone else, anytime they're around someone younger than their own age, they have these thoughts. These the sticky thoughts that Just come keep back. coming back and, and just keep harassing them, bullying them all the time. And so the same thing is true in a sense, right? When people are so ashamed of their authentic eroticism, Mm-hmm. That they try to not just um, maintain self-control, because that's that's a given, that's an obvious one, right? But this idea that they have to suppress it fully, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. I can't have these thoughts at all. I can't be pleased by this. I can't get turned on by this. And so anytime the thought comes, you're engaging with it as if it were the most important thing in the world. Which suddenly it becomes makes that. sex feel kind of like the most <laughs> yeah. important thing in your world. And if you're spending all of your time ruminating and, and in this constant state of, of self-loathing because you hate the fact that, well, I you know have a high libido and I want to engage sexually. And when I'm horny, mm-hmm. I think about these things. And I feel like I want to do these things. Mm-hmm. And all of those things make me feel terrible about myself. I feel like I'm an awful person because I want to be sexual every day. And that leads me to have sexual thoughts that yeah. if I acted on them, I, I wouldn't feel okay about. And, you know, I, again, I'm constantly thinking about it because it's so, it's so meaningful and evokes so many powerfully negative emotions that it just kind of is on loop in my head. And it does get to the point where a lot of people feel very victimized by their own eroticism. Yeah. Which I think is quite sad. Yeah, that is sad. And I think common. Well, I think we really could sit here for another hour and plus talking about these things. Yeah. You know, we might need to do this again another time on I this would, topic. I would love that. <laughs> that would be fantastic. So, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Wait, friends, don't go. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you leave me a good rating and spread the word? Tell a friend.